listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we look at questions and topics that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday life. This episode is part one of a two-part episode where we sit down with Calvin Brown and Lou Holmes. So in July, we had a forum between Joe and Calvin discussing issues of race and Christianity. And there are some questions we actually didn't get to, so we wanted to record them, put them on a podcast. Uh, it's going to be split into two parts, so this is part one of our discussion with Calvin Brown and Lou Holmes. Welcome in to Church Unplugged. Welcome into Church Unplugged. I'm Jimmy Cozy, part of the leadership team here at CCC. Uh, I've got with me today Joe Coffey, our lead pastor, and then Calvin Brown, who is the pastor, one of the pastors at Destiny Church in Twinsburg, also the executive director of Edge Sports and Arts Academy. And then I've got Lou Holmes, a member of our congregation, who we've had some really good conversations with recently. So this podcast is a follow-up to the forum we've done uh, on race with Calvin and Joe, and there were some questions that we wanted to get to in that forum we didn't. These are questions that uh, particularly white Christians tend to ask a lot, and so we wanted to create an environment where we could talk through some of these things openly and honestly. So, uh, Joe, I'm going to hand it over to Good. you, but welcome in. Good. Thanks. Uh, hey, I, I will start with uh, one thing that I wish I had said uh, back when Calvin and I were talking, and this is the only uh, thing I'm going to say about wanting to say something else, is that uh, I said I wish that people would quit acting more like Republicans than Christians. I still stand by that, but I probably should have added that that stands for Democrats, too. But in our congregation, it is tendency, the tendency is for more Republicans. But with that said, we had some questions that we wanted to get to, and I thought it'd be great to have uh, Calvin back and then uh, add Lou in for these questions. Uh, one of the questions that uh, looms uh, is the what has happened to the black nuclear family, um, particularly uh, single-parent homes. We know that uh, that the basic idea, I know when I talk about poverty and that the, the wealth gap and all that, people bring up that the, the number one indicator for poverty is uh, a single-parent home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two parents with a child, your, your chances of, of living, you, the lifetime in poverty goes way, way down. So, And we know that uh, single, parent, uh, single parents has, has exploded across all ethnic groups, white, Hispanic, and uh, black. But out of those three, it has been more devastating to the black community. So let's talk some about that. What, what do you feel like has gone on? What is... Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, so um, so I have a few thoughts on that uh, because, yeah, it does, does come up on a pretty regular basis. Um, I think the first thing I would want to speak to is sort of the, the spirit of the question when someone asks the question. And what I what I want to appeal to them, um, I, I appeal to them as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, not to use that question to justify. So when you think of the uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you know Jesus says, you know, love God, and and everyone can check off on that. But he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It says the expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he wanted to try to he wanted to find a definition for neighbor that was much more narrow than uh, probably what Jesus was talking about, right. and um, 
anyway, he tells a story how th- these guys are able to just walk by someone who's hurting and see them but avoid them because to see them means you got to stop. To stop means you have to do something. Do something means you've got to give up something. You know, there's some sacrifice. And it really became a deflection. So we want to make sure it's not that because one way someone could look at this issue is that as believers, we could look and see, while they are broken people, what is God calling me to do? That really should be the way to engage it. Um, But another way to approach this is, um, we were talking before the the, the, the uh, broadcast here that um, you know how the black family was able to be intact during the time of slavery and then Jim Crow and such and such. But um, I mean, think about it. For the first 250 years uh, on this uh, on this country, blacks could not practice family, really family, because. Our, as a man, my household was not my own. My wife was not mine. My daughters and my sons were not mine. They belonged to someone so they could be used or departed or sold or done anything with. So there was no sense of not, not family the way we think of family because a man had no household and he could not certainly lead his household. In fact, it was um, intentional in some cases to divide and split just because the more people you get in commonality together, the greater threat there is for... Uh, escape or resurrection or uh, insurrection or what have you. So we have to think. Um, so one way one way to look at this is, um, I think it's an amazing thing that the black family even exists today. Yeah. Um, I mean, for for centuries of of assault. And let me just share. I, a friend of mine just happened to send me an article this this past week titled um, "Grandparents uh, Ken and Play Cousins." And it's this amazing way that the black family is, we don't typically define family strictly as mom, dad, brother, sister. My cousins are literally like my brothers and sisters. Um, My aunts and uncles are like my parents. And so I think that's how the black community has learned to to deal with um, the, the, the splintering and I saw that. I've been to Africa a few times. I saw that. When we go, in Kenya in particular, we've been a couple of times with my family and I over the last couple of years, the kids are introduced to us as we're auntie and uncle to them. Huh. Like right away there's this sense of there is a, a, whole, a whole village. I'll say one last thing on that. Um, the, the nuclear family is disintegrating across the country. I mean, divorces among Christians is similar to that among non-Christians. So our entire, uh, the family is under attack across the nation. Um, It's also interesting to know that when you look at black families and white families and similar socioeconomic categories, the numbers are similar. When you look at black and white families um, in poverty, the numbers are similar. The difference becomes that there are more, obviously, blacks who are in poverty. Right. But the numbers are really similar um, when, when in, in, based on the socioeconomic category. Right. Now, what's interesting, I think it is uh, amazing that there is, that the black family exists. But the thing that's surprising to me is that we talked about before the podcast is that um, so... There was a time when the black nuclear family was flourishing. In fact, there was fewer 
there were fewer divorces and uh, a stronger nuclear family among the black community. And it may be because it was deprived, but you went, but there, there was this section of time. I don't know what's happened since then, and it may have just been societal that it happened to everyone, but it seems like out of all the, the different uh, parts of our society, the African-American community has suffered the most of that. Mm-hmm. Now, and I agree that there, we need to somehow uh, touch the people who are hurting now, but how do we try to, <clears throat> how does the problem get solved? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a complex, uh, layered issue. But I would agree with Pastor Brown on a couple of things. One is that so I'm an only child, right? Um, and my wife's an only child. So coming up, my siblings were my cousins, right? Those are the ones that, you know, aunts and uncles. It was really like this very, you know, it was different than your your typical, especially when I would work or, you know, interact with um white friends or friends from different cultures. It was very different than kind of maybe the way, you know, even the way we talked about family and some titles we gave folks were a little bit different. And they say, wait a minute, what do you mean you play cousin? Like, I don't understand what, I don't understand what that's about. Um, but I do think a couple things. One is the psychology, psychological impact of slavery and ultimately how it's kind of played through over a long period of time. We need to be careful not to understate that impact, right? And I think there will be different inflection points over time. And, you know, but ultimately, you know, if you really look at the history and kind of how things were handled, um, it's hard to ignore, you know, ultimately, you know, intuitively how that might play out for families of color, you know, when you've kind of been dealing with those types of of conditions. Um, And then they, you know, obviously even once slavery ended through, you know, not slavery by the name, but other systemic and structural um, challenges that seem to disproportionately impact black people. So I think that's part of it. I think the the broader deterioration that we talk about across races, um, I look at that as the, you know, some races may, and particularly maybe the dominant culture, as we've kind of talked about, you may have an ability to be a little more resilient to some of that, given structures that are in place, right? right? right. So if if something's going to impact, and I think of the pandemic as another example, like there are certain underlying conditions and certain things that exist that will disproportionately affect black people versus the rest right. of the other races. It just is, is true. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, give you a direct answer on why it occurs. Yeah, no, but. that's a great, that's a great point. So they, so just like uh, in the pandemic, there are certain people who have pre-existing conditions, right. That make them more vulnerable to the same virus. What you're saying is that there could be uh, that the history of the African-American people group might have made them more susceptible to certain ill societal ills. Right. Okay. Yeah, that I uh, that I get. I understand that. Let me ask you this: that, you know, one of the things that happens, and this is part of the deal, is what uh, white white people tend to do is, at least from my understanding, and I you know I hate to speak for all white people, but I'm going to ask. I mean, I'm, I'm going to speak for all white people. You guys get Go to ahead. speak for all black people. <laughs> That's right. right? <laughs> so, um, is uh, we seem to be big on personal responsibility, right? So we're saying, listen. You gotta, 
and then what we hear is, uh, and it, we're almost like a, you know, you ever meet a married couple, an old married couple, where one is an optimist and the other is a pessimist, and the older they get, the further away they get, and the more they have to feel like they have to balance each other out, right? right? right. So every time it seems like uh, an African American will say that there's systemic racism, uh, the white movement is further away to say no. It's personal responsibility. You got to be, and every time the white people say personal responsibility, it seems like black people move further to say no. Right. It's systemic racism. Right. So, what? let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's solve that one. Yeah. So, so I'm um, uh, a both and kind of person. Well, I think we have to be. Yeah. yeah you, right? Well, we we really we should do. be. We should right. be. Right. And it really is both and. So, yes, um, I, I, I hate to use these categories, but black theology versus white theology. You know, white theology is, evangelical theology is, it's heavy on the individual. Absolutely. Personal right. piety, which is why one can say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm not a racist, so it, it doesn't exist in my world, right? Um but what we have to understand, and it really is both, what we have to understand is that as it relates to salvation and all things theological, yes, God, God died for me. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. I need to confess right. I individually. But really, I am... I am a part of a community. It really is a communal faith. I become a part of the body. I become a part of the family. I am responsible to my brothers and sisters. Scripture says, if, if I see, if I'm spiritual, if I see a brother or sister caught in sin, I don't say, brother, you need to pull up your bootstraps and get out of that mess. No, I have a responsibility, right? So we see this as a communal faith. This is why Paul pulls his hair out if he assumes he had hair, trying to get Jews and Gentiles to live together. Right. He's trying to get people with this spiritual gift versus that spiritual gift to give to work in concert with one another. So really it's both and and I see where it happens because because when a person continues to drill down on one point, it's about individual responsibility. The tendency is to respond in kind with, no, it's about this. But it really should be, yes, it is about personal responsibility. And yes, it is also about the community responsibility that we have to, to care for one another, to love one another. So I live in a both-end world in my own mind, and that's typically how I process things. So I can have this conversation and talk about individual responsibility. Yeah, individual choices. But I also realize, too, that we all operate in the context of a there's a superstructure, and I do believe systemic racism exists, right? And we know that if certain conditions are set, we can, we can predict how people will act, black, white, or otherwise. You set the conditions, we can, we can determine how they're going to act, right. for the most part. Right. So I, it's a both and. Okay. Yeah, so if I could piggyback on Pastor Brown's comment. So I think very simply, I think the church can be the blueprint for that, right? So the part that troubles me, I think the most, is when I don't see the church showing that communal aspect of the one body, right? Like when 
when you can see separation in the in the church and you see, you know, whether it's like you said, white theology, black theology, like no, we we can show the broader society and the broader right. world how that how that's done, and I, and also feel like to that point when we get back to the you know whether single parent households or you know from a personal responsibility standpoint, like one of the most personally what I've experienced, you know, my life and working with others, you know, the absence of, you know, maybe two parents, you know, what you're what you're you're missing is support, sponsorship and advocacy, right? So for an individual to be personally responsible, right, what helped me is I had two parents who were very involved, right? They, you know, it helped me understand what my responsibility were, was and they knew what they needed to do. But I had that support, right. and I think in some of these structures or these families where you don't have as much support, as much sponsorship, as much advocacy, you're not going to have the same personal responsibility probably or capability right. relative to the peer group. And I think that's where from a communal standpoint, when you see that, right, it's not, hey, that's that's tough, right? It's, no, how can I get involved? In, how, and it may be across racial lines, right? I mean, that's where, you know, if a— White family has the ability to help a family of color or youth of color. I think that should be on the table, and that should be one of the ways that we're trying to bring bring um, some of the solutions and some you know reparation on some level to the situation. Because it's not in the church, we should be colorblind on some level. Like we see, you know, optically we're from different races, but I don't. I think the church has a much bigger role to play and can be an example for um, the population at large, at least my personal perspective. Good. All right, I'm going to change. Let me uh, change. And I want to get back to systemic racism eventually. But when you hear uh, somebody say, well, what about black on black crime? What do you hear? What's your what's what's your feeling about that? Well, the first thing I hear is. uh, that's that's not the topic, right? I mean, what, like, what are you talking about? What does that, what does that have to do with anything? That's the first thing I think. It, I think deflection, right? Um, but then to to I mean to process it, you know, more deeply. Um, here here's the reality: people commit crimes against people who are more, most like them because we live in a very racialized, segregated country. So most white people are among white people and black people among black people, which is why 90% of black crime is black on black crime. Mm-hmm. And 90% and, of white and, crime? And about 85% right. of white crime is white on white crime. Right. So it's like, yeah. okay, what, what's the next question? Like, yeah. Can we move on to the next topic, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, the yeah. same, it's the same issue, right? Uh, both are, are, are the same. I think um, that's often cited yeah. in situations of, for example, police brutality when there's been an, an issue where there's – uh, a white police officer who commits a violent act against a black person, people will say, well, black people are much more violent against black people than white police people, white police officers are. So, which, so I don't, one, I think one has nothing to do with the other. So I'm going to give you, I hope, um, let me, let me share this. So there are about 50,000 suicides each year in America. 70% of those suicides are white men killing themselves. Does that degrade the value of their lives? Can we just start treating like white men in any way we want because 
because disproportionately they take their lives. That's it's you know I hope that's not a ludicrous analogy, no, no, but you know what yeah. I mean. So you know the, the the reason why police brutality is a problem is because it's a crime against humanity. The police are not supposed to, at least in theory, brutalize people. They're supposed to protect and serve. So, um, and, you know, Joe asked me a question at the forum that if I could hit the rewind button a bit, because I was processing this a bit more, and it's like, how do, why did so many black people identify with George Floyd? I think you right. said something along those lines. Right. And as I really processed that, it was because, first of all, we've been forced to think about our blackness and our culture from the very beginning. But I've been in George Floyd's position. I've never had to the extreme of knee on the neck, but it's the thing I fear for my boys every day, my oldest son particularly, because he's driving on his own. And I have had the experience where there's this random sort of pulling over in this treatment, and I'm thinking, what is, and then later on, what was that all about? And I can't find any rational reason. And I see myself in George Floyd. I've had other situations that have been a bit more aggressive. So I identify, right? Um, but that's why it's a problem. It's a, crime. it's a crime against humanity. Brutality is not something that should be acceptable, certainly not from those who are, at least in theory, given to, to protect and serve. And again, so the, again, the numbers are, are similar in white communities, black communities, black on black crime, white on white crime, and you know, on down the line. But then one could open up the conversation to, to systemic racism in this topic as well, because you look at why is it that given the same crime, black men are disproportionately tried, or usually not tried, plea bargained, imprisoned, and when in prison, longer sentences, right? And then we have the system of, you mentioned earlier, how do we help families that are in despair? Well, a number of families are in despair because the, the father has been incarcerated. And our system is set up, when you come out, you can't vote, you can't get certifications and licenses, you gotta keep telling people over and over, I've been convicted, and, this, and the circle just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and the guy gets more and more desperate, and again, you set the conditions, mm -hmm. you put a guy in a desperate situation, mm -hmm. he's gonna do whatever he needs to do to make it to to make life work for him, right? Yeah. So I think the deflection is probably the first. It's like okay, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Um, but I, I would say when you break down the stats, like he did, the intra-racial violent crime looks the same in terms of who the crimes is com are committed against, right? So for me, it's it turns into a conversation of correlation and causation, right? So. The correlation is the relationship, okay, it happens, you know, white people tend to cr commit crimes against other white people, black people tend to commit crimes against other black people. But the causation aspect, I think, is more interesting to me. So when you look at, you know, there is data out there that would say, you know, the the crime rates or violent crime rates, you know, based on poverty look very similar between black and whites, right? So then it's like, all right, well, you know, we have a a, a, a mixed bias in terms of there are more black people in poverty. It's like, well, 
why is that, right? And so then you start, you know, unpeeling, you know, peeling back the onion and you start to get to more of the causation aspect of what leads to it as opposed to just looking at the relationship that says, well, it happens more, right? Well, it's like, yeah, but the real question is why does it happen more if you're really looking for the solution? So um, for me, I hear I hear that question um, and it's interesting and, you know, no doubt I've had my own personal experiences, you know, both with law enforcement and also with just, you know, black on black crime. Like it's affected my family, it's affected me directly. Like I, I we separate conversation, longer dialogue about that specifically. But I think for me, if you focus more on the causation aspect of the question and less on the correlation, you know, I think you may start to ask some questions that may get back to, you know, structural and systemic racism and some of the things that we're talking about. So You've been listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we're going to look at topics and questions that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday life. We want your feedback. We want your suggestions. If you've got ideas or questions that you'd like to hear answered on the show, you can email us at churchunplugged at ccchapel.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.